Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. I had mentioned that in the article about our high school science lesson about you know osmosis, what happens with um, water. So you can have plants growing close to a wet area that are literally almost sitting in standing water. They're saturated, the soil is wet, they have plenty of moisture to grow, but they look like they're drying up, like they're showing drought stress and they are showing those symptoms. And that's because the salts hold onto the water. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host Jason Creighton and this is episode number 69, Soil Salinity, Farming, and Habitat. Now today I'm going to be talking with Austin Lang. Uh, Austin is the North Dakota Precision Ag and Conservation Specialist for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Uh, he is sort of new working with Pheasants Forever, um, but he has been in the conservation business for uh, many, many years. Uh, he's been a hunter and outdoorsman his entire life, uh, and uh, he you know, grew up on a farm. So uh, a lot of the stuff that you're going to hear us talking about is um, some newer age stuff, right? Soil salinity, precision ag, um, you know, using areas of your farm as uh, wildlife habitat, uh, you know, instead of production uh, until it can, you know, sort of be a better producer for the crops that you're planting, things like that. All this kind of stuff is a little bit uh, newer uh, as far as farming goes, but Austin has extensive knowledge in, you know, what it takes to run a farm, what it takes to uh, have a successful farm and how we can use these sort of areas where we don't have great crop production uh, and turn them into great, you know, quality habitat for wildlife. Uh, and, you know, at the same time, you're going to hear him talking about this, you know, while we're producing this good habitat, uh, we're also restoring this land to better, uh, to produce better crops uh, in, you know, 5, 10, or 15 years, uh, which then the farmers can then replant. So I don't want to get too much into it here because I'll be honest, I'm not a farmer, right? Uh, I feel like everyone listening already knows that. Uh, I'm not the expert when it comes to farming, let alone precision ag. So uh, let's get right to it with Austin and uh, hear what the expert has to say. We're really trying to look at, um, you probably hunted some CRP when you were here, or what we call CRP. And back in, um, you know, when that was authorized and really got kicked off in the mid 80s and the 90s, that program, um, a lot of times people were just planting whole quarters of, you know, of farmland to grass. And, you know, some of those acres were probably pretty marginal, but some were probably some pretty good um, crop areas that could have continued to have been farmed too. So, um, you know, like any organization, um, you know, we, the members, they work hard to, to raise funds and to, to get grants to do projects. And so we really want to make 
the wisest use of the dollars we can, which is where the precision ag comes in. So um, instead of just saying, let's just plant a bunch of grass, it's maybe let's, you know, if we've got so many acres and dollars to work with, let's go put those acres where it's maybe the most environmentally sensitive or it's maybe doesn't make sense to really farm those acres in the, in the first place. And, and that's kind of where the profitability comes in as well. Um, you know, it's got to be a partnership with the farmers and with us. Um, you know, a lot of this land, majority of it is privately owned. So, you know, they have to have, they obviously have say in their own land. And, and as much as people like pheasants and they, they like seeing them and, and some of them even like hunting them, um, just to go around and saying, hey, you should plant a bunch of grass for pheasants and stuff. It, it's a, it's a tough sell and, and we wouldn't get very far in our mission if we did that. Um, so that's where we kind of try to work together with them. So using, I guess, our models, we try to find those areas and demonstrate through the profitability that, you know, say in a soybean crop, you might be sticking 250 to $300 an acre into that. And if you're losing money every year on that, maybe, you know, it's time to, a lot of times they'd be better off just not even doing anything with them, period, in terms of profitability. So if we're looking at habitat, you know, that's where we can work together. We can use the, the precision ag and the profitability to look at those areas that make the most sense. You know, we'll get some habitat out of it, but in the meantime, their profitability at the field level goes way up. You know, oftentimes, you know, if you take out, you know, a few of those acres that are really dragging down their yield, their average proven yield can go up quite a bit per acre on the rest of the field, that's good. So it can generate just as much money on the good acres of the field as all of them together and we get some of the habitat benefits. So it's starting to catch on a little bit. So, I mean, that's obviously the, the precision um, part of that, right? You know, planting even you know, stop, you know, stopping your fields where you're no longer making any money. But I mean, how, like, how are, how are farmers identifying where spots are in their fields that just aren't worth planting? Is it just solely based on, you know, what they harvest afterwards or, because I mean, it's not just the seed, you, know, you mentioned 250 $300 an acre. I mean, that's just, that's not just seed, right? That, you know, the money for that's coming in the fertilizer and fuel for the combine and, and planters and all that stuff. So, I mean, how do we figure out like, oh, this part of the field, this acre or this half acre, or, you know, how do we, how are they finding out that like, oh, this isn't, this isn't going to be profitable for me? Well, kind of one way I'm, I've been working at it is, um, you know, a lot of the universities have some crop budgets that give a pretty good idea of what inputs look like. And we usually use those as a starting point. If the person happens to have their own data, we'll use that. But basically what it comes down to is bushels per acre. So we can determine, say, maybe across this operation that we need 140 bushels per acre of corn to break even. And so knowing that if we have a yield map from their combine, you know, with all those points and the yields, we can kind of split out and tease out where those areas that are falling short. And just doing it over one year doesn't always work, you know, because there's some years, you know, 2016, 2017, a lot of those places look not too bad. And 
you get to 2019, a lot of those places drowned out or flooded out. And so it's, you kind of have to look at it over a series of years to, to figure out where those trouble spots are, but we can use their, their combine machine data to really find the bushels per acre. And once we know their budget, we can figure out, you know, where they're losing, where they're making, and even by how much. Um, we can use, if they don't have that available, we can use other tools too, just um, NDVI imagery. Um, it's basically satellite and infrared imagery that can tell, you know, productivity. You can see those spots in a field that might not be producing as well as others. It might not give us the exact bushels, but it's a, a good way for us to determine, you know, where we would start to look at. So, I mean, a lot of the stuff you're talking about there, it's, it seems to me like it's technology based. Um, do you, do you see like mainly younger farmers um, that seem to more readily grasp this idea um, of trying to do a little more precision and, and focusing on the input and, and output of, you know, certain acres of their field? I mean, like I, it, I mean, me, I'm thinking of my grandfather who grew up on a farm. Um, he did, he didn't farm. He was uh, a hobby farm, um, but um, you know, he, he drove a coal truck. Um, and to like, for me to go to him now and be like, well, hey, based on this satellite imagery and you know, this fancy technology and this combine that tells us how many bushel we're pulling out in this one spot of the field, like he'd be like, ah, ah you know, um, so is it, is it like the younger generations of the farmers that are starting to warm up to this idea? It's a, farmers are a really diverse bunch. You've got, you know, some younger generations that don't like technology and some of the veteran pros that do, but as a rule, you know, generally younger ones are probably going to really be into technology. Um, with the way the equipment has gone though, most of the equipment, you know, the last how many years is capable of it. And uh, a lot of people are starting to hire consultants and other people to, you know, write prescriptions and things like that. So they might not know it very well or, or want to deal with it, but they hire somebody who probably does. And there's people who, like you described, you know, what your grandpa would be like on that situation. And, you know, somebody like that, we, it's here too. We definitely have people that would approach it that way. And what we see with them is they know something's wrong with these certain spots in the field. They might not know how much they're losing or what their exact input or their cost is, but they know that the, the crop is pretty spindly there and they stick a lot of time and money into it for not a lot of rewards. So we can look at it and just get something, you know, relative. We might not get the exact amount, but they still know that we're not they have some good farm ground. We're not going to necessarily take their best. You know, our, our thinking is kind of, you know, farm the best, conserve the rest. That's, that's kind of where we're leaning with that. So for those that want to, we'll, we can really dive down with them in the technology and, and we can work with that. And for those that really don't care to, you know, we don't need to get into the weeds that much. We can still help them out or, you know, connect them with a program that might help them do what they want to do. And a lot of the people have to really think too are the local soil conservation districts. Um, you know, I used to kind of work in that realm before Pheasants Forever as well. And, and they're pretty active and know a lot of the locals and, and we kind of work together to try to 
help people out in that aspect too. So is it like the farmers are reaching out to you um, or are you like knocking on doors and being like, hey, you have these fields, you know, let's work together. Um, or I mean, how did, is it through those uh, soil conservancies? I mean, how is it that this process gets started? All of the above, <laughs> especially <laughs> now. It's, uh, I'm glad you asked that. It's um, totally different. I used to work with, you know, I grew up on a farm and ranch myself. Um, and I had worked with USDA for about 15 years. And it was different because, you know, being in a county office, you had traffic walking through the door all the time. You know, you were never out looking for more work. It was constantly walking through the door. Now it's reversed. And especially since I started this position, I started in June of this year. So with the virus and everything else, there was, you know, some of those offices were closed. Um, so I rely on a little bit of, you know, everything I rely on, you know, I try to get out in my social media, um, get in the paper, you know, work with the soil districts, the offices, uh, dealerships, word of mouth, just to get our services out, you know, what we have to offer, and then hope the calls start to come in, which fortunately they have been so far. But yeah, we, we go out and try to um, let them know what's available. And, and oftentimes it gets a, at least some kind of a response. But it, it just, it makes me think, you know, I mean, it, in this situation, it's a little bit of like, scratch my back, I'll scratch yours when it comes to wildlife habitat and farming, right? Um, yeah. And so it makes me wonder um, what the reasoning is for farmers. You know, I, I mean, are there farmers out there that they're, no, they're and I'm sure there are, there are, I'm sure there are some out there that are willing to take a little bit more production out of their fields for a little bit better habitat. I'm sure there's also some that are like, listen, I, I only want to do this because it's going to help my bottom line. Um, uh, I'm sure there's a, a mix between those two and a lot of the people that you're dealing with. Absolutely. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. A lot of what's happened, and I don't know, you know, from your experience or what, how many times you've been to North Dakota, but, you know, since the, everyone says 93, 1993, that was kind of the year we got into a wet cycle. And since then, especially with salinity, you know, you mentioned in my article, if you read through about controlling the water, you know, you kind of control the salt. Well, if the water has been just getting more and more and more and more, um, you know, there's been some incentive for people that, you know, were tired of putting all this money into this area. And, you know, if nothing grows and we have no cover and those spots just keep getting bigger and we keep losing more land because those spots keep getting bigger. So, you know, a lot of it's financially driven. They just realize, you know, we're not making anything on this. And so besides just putting it into habitat, a lot of times we can find a program that would compensate that at least for a period of time so they're not you know instead of losing 20 30 dollars an acre or more um, maybe they're breaking even or making five bucks an acre off of a conservation payment and then the rest of their acres on that field um, it's not uncommon in corn you know where if you take those poor acres out your average yield might go up by 20 to 30 bushels per acre if you average it, you know, they're not producing anymore, but if you do the math and the numbers, um, so it looks, 
looks better to them on both sides. It's, it's really kind of the numbers and people's willingness to do it and everybody's individual situation. Some people, they, they said, yeah, here, I'll give you like hundreds of acres, you know, let's go do it. And others, it's hard sell to get them to, you know, want to do three or five. So it's very, very variable across that. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that article because my dad and I, when we were out there in North Dakota hunting, um, it, you know, with this pandemic, it was a little tougher for us to do what we initially would like to do on a trip like this, right? You want to, um, we want to immerse, immerse ourselves in the culture, see what the town's like, talk to the people um, that, you know, one, that's sort of the type of people that we are. We like to talk to other people. I've, I have a podcast where I talk to other people that I meet all the time. Um, I'm a talker. Uh, sometimes to my family's chagrin, my dad and I are talkers, um, but we couldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, just trying to reduce the exposure that we had and exposing other people to what we might have brought from Pennsylvania. We were trying to be responsible. Uh, so what we what we did was we stopped and, you know, um, in the convenience stores and uh, would get a paper. Uh, just the local paper, just to see what's going on in this little town, you know, that kind of thing. And um, one of the papers we picked up, we, we saw an article about you. Conservation Corner was the, uh, was the column, which is not the kind of thing that you see in, in newspapers in southwestern Pennsylvania. So it, it was cool to see. So we definitely had to read it. And one of the things you brought, the reason why I really wanted to talk to you, uh, one of the things you brought up in that article, along with the precision ag and everything we've been talking about, is that soil salinity. Um, I didn't even know there was salt in soil. So how, can you just sort of rehash a little bit about how the soil salinity can work against the growing of crops and, and basics, basically sort of rehash a little bit of, of what you said in that article? Sure. And there's, you know, different types of, of salts, you know, there's like sodium salts and there can be, um, you know, different like calcium and, and different types of um, forms of salt. And uh, basically, they're just naturally occurring in different levels in the soil. And kind of what I was alluding to or why they're harmful or, or a concern to plants is when you have enough of them in the plant root zone, it starts to do some things we don't like to plants. And I'd mentioned that in the article about our high school science lesson about, you know, osmosis, what happens with um, water. So you can have plants growing close to a wet area that, that are literally almost sitting in standing water. They're saturated. The soil is wet. They have plenty of moisture to grow, but they look like they're drying up, like they're showing drought stress and, th and they are showing those symptoms. And that's because the salts hold onto the water. You know, the, the water doesn't want to move into the roots. It wants to stay where the salt is at. So it directly competes with the plant, if you want to put it in those terms, with, you know, production. And certain plants are much more tolerant to it than others. Crops like sunflowers, barley, um, those type of crops handle it quite well. Um, corn, kind of in between. Uh, soybeans are super sensitive to it. And um, you really see, you can see some significant uh, yield reductions. And so, like I said, since 93, we've probably been getting on average significantly more water every year. And, and kind of how that works is, 
you know, those salts have been down in the soil, mostly out of the way of the roots. But if you have excess water in the soil and it's saturated and you have, you know, black soil on the top, you know, you're evaporating water off of the top of that soil. And what it wants to do, if it's saturated underneath, it's gonna wick water up like a sponge. Kind of like if you spilled water on your table and you set a dry sponge on top of it, pretty soon the top of that sponge is gonna get wet. Well, as the water moves to the top, we know that salts are somewhat, you know, they will dissolve. And they'll dissolve and they'll go up with that water. And when the water wicks away and evaporates away, the salts stay. And so that's how they get from deeper in the soil, you know, where they're not really an issue to closer to the surface where they get in the root zone. And that's where they start doing the damage with the plants. And so, yeah, a lot of controlling that, you know, you can, there's people have turned to tile, um, tile drainage, and in instances that might be the only option if they have, you know, some significant subsurface water. But a lot of times, over time, you might be able to, we call it grow your way out of it. And that is having, you know, plants that are tolerant growing on the surface. So, the plants that are tolerant, they provide some shading and some cover. So that reduces your evaporation off the soil surface. What it also does is as those roots use water, um, that zone in the soil kind of gets depleted out from excess moisture. And we're, you know, we hope after time with rains that that'll infiltrate water back down into the soil. So now the salts will be starting to move down, not up. So that's where putting this, you know, this cover, it's a way to help slow the spread of those salts or even stop it and maybe slowly reverse it. But pheasants like it too. So that's where the win for the farmer is and the win for us is. Yeah, because when you're, you're, when you're talking about putting the, these acres into a little bit more wildlife habitat, um, you're talking about planting uh, you know, specific mixes or specific things that are going to benefit the soil. Um, in that case, it would be with the salt that's in the soil, but then, you know, it's not a forever thing, right? So once the, the soil health comes back, theoretically, then, you know, whether that's 5, 10, 15 years later, then that could be farmed again. So it's not a, a you know, a permanent loss to production. No, most of our stuff is five years that if we you know, work with it through one of our programs. There's other ones out there that are, you know, up to 10 years, some 15. I mean, you can even go with like a short-term easement up to 30 years, but we don't usually look at that. We look at a lot of um, three, five, 10 year type things. And a lot of times it, it might be perennial vegetation, but sometimes it might be just planting a cover or a crop there that they can still make a little bit of use out of. Uh, one thing people have been planting is uh, a lot of rye in areas where they can because it's a good cover crop and they'll use that seed to plant some covers on other parts of their farm. And rye also, um, you know, has an allelopathic effect, meaning, you know, it gives off a chemical that can reduce competition from other plants, one of those being kochia. So, you know, you've got a cover crop that will suppress a weed and help keep it down. So when they spray, you know, it'll, it'll kill the, the weed a lot easier, which is 
really handy because kochia is one of those weeds that's becoming resistant to a lot of herbicides. So if you can help, you know, even if the rye doesn't kill it or totally suppress it, if it keeps it at a couple inches tall, you know, that that plant that's a couple inches tall is pretty susceptible to a herbicide pass and doesn't do a lot of damage versus one that's, you know, a foot tall. Huh. That, that's interesting. There, there were a couple of things that um, you know, were, my dad, I probably get this from my dad. We're, I'm, I'm a very inquisitive guy. Um, and there were a couple of things that really struck us with the fields that were out there. So uh, in North Dakota, whenever we went for our hunt, um, it's been a dry year. So uh, I would say, I would guess that roughly where we were hunting, roughly 90% of the crops were already harvested um, by the time we got there and probably 95% by the time we left. Um, one of the things that really struck me was, and struck both of us, was just how black the soil is out there. It's a, a very, very dark color um, coming from our area of the country. We have a lot of clay in our dirt. Um, so even good dirt uh, still has a very sort of light brown color to it. Um, and then the other thing that, that struck me that I'm, I'm so glad we I, I read your article because it made sense. There were areas where tractors would run or um, you know, some, just some different areas in the field that we noticed uh, because it was so dry that the dirt was turning white. And I was like, what is this white from? What's this coming from? What, you know, maybe they put lime out. We, we didn't know, we had no idea. And then reading your article, it's like, oh, well, that makes sense. There's all this wind that's dry. That dirt is dry and it's, as it's drying, it's pulling up all that salt from, from down in the soil. It's like, oh, well, that, okay, that makes sense. But we just couldn't get over how, how just how dark that soil was out there. It was impressive. It, it, to um, non-farm people from eastern, from the eastern United States, it looked like really healthy dirt to us. <laughs> and it, you know, and the, you even get in the better parts of the valley, it looks like you're planting in like crushed up coal, you know, and it's, uh, it's pretty good stuff. And that's just, uh, you know, it's a pretty young soil. Um, the glaciers left, you know, they figure you know, 10 to 13,000 years ago, maybe. And they had, you know, really tall grasslands, tall grass prairie. A lot of that organic matter from the grasses got cycled through year after year. And it really built a, a lot of organic matter up in those soils. So. One of the other things that, that struck me that I was a little surprised to see, um, it seemed like most of the fields did most of the farmers did a shallow till in their fields after they harvested, um, which I know is like the way we've, we've always farmed. I assumed being um, in the Midwest that, that people would do a little more no-till farming. Um, and that's something we talked about uh, through email before we started recording was that, um, you know, you practice no-till on your farm. Um, I mean, is that, is that the way to go? What's, what's the cost benefit of doing no-till as opposed to the traditional disc up your field? There's a, there's a big learning curve. It, um, you know, as far as no-till, it's so much more than just stopping tilling. You know, it's a, a whole management system and there's a lot of variables, you know, to it. And from my years with, you know, the USDA and seeing different speakers and people from around the world who have done it, 
It's, this is my personal opinion. I think you can do it and make it work anywhere in the world, but it's going to look a lot different, and especially in North Dakota. Um, where I'm at right now, we're kind of on the edge of where you see a lot more no-till, but that's because the soils are they're a little shallower, not quite as dark colored, a little less rainfall. If anything, water and moisture is a limiting factor. And with no-till, you can show you know, some results pretty quick, you know, with no-till and building your soil health, you know, you can show some reduced inputs, maybe you might not get bigger yields, but you might get the same yields and not spend as much doing it over time. And like NDSU has their nitrogen calculator and after five years of continuous no-till, I believe it's a 50 pound credit you can give yourself, you know, on the, on the wheat calculator nitrogen calculator. So, you know, there's a benefit to it. Um, going over to the area as you go east, they get a little more rainfall and they have um, some heavier soils, a lot more clay as well. And it gets harder to see those benefits as quickly. And so there are people over there who do it. It's just a lot less frequent. So for as much tillage as you saw in the eastern part of the state, you'd see that much no-till on the western side of the state. Um, so it's just a very big difference in North Dakota and kind of where I'm located, it's almost in that transition zone to where, you know, you see that switch. So, like I said, I, I think it's a good system, but I don't think the other system is bad. I think we've come a long ways. I, I remember when I was younger in the eighties, my, I was kind of used as the bird dog for my, my dad and his friends to help get in some of those areas and flush out some pheasants. And a lot of these lakes that are really deep now are dry. And uh, I remember the wind would blow and you could taste the, like the salt and the dirt on your lips when you were done and a lot of soil blew. And we've seen that even the past, in the past five years here, you know, some of those fields that are dry, you know, will, you know, will really blow over winter. And um, so if we can at least keep it covered, I think that's a step in the right direction you know, at least keep some armor on the soil. I would like to see no-till and, and more soil health, but uh, I think people are, are getting there. They're working that direction. Yeah, just, um, you know, the, the, again, the inquisitiveness of me, I'm interested in, um, you know, the Dust Bowl era um, and, you know, everything that sort of came out of that. And I, I know no-till, I mean, that's when it really started. Um, you know, being pushed by the USDA and, and everything. And um, I, I just, I, I, get, I guess I was just surprised. I, I thought that would be more commonplace. It's not in Western Pennsylvania at all. Uh, you don't see a single farm. Uh, I don't know of a single farm that practices no-till um, until you hit uh, the other half, the Eastern half of the state. There's a few that do it out there. Um, and they're pretty well known for the fact that they do it because they promote their, their farms as, you know, being promoting healthy soils and, and um, things like that. But it's not something you see here. I just, I, not knowing what the area was like, uh, I expected to see more, basically like everyone does it out here. Um, it, that's interesting to learn that even North Dakota has, you know, a, a split of some farmers that do and, and some farmers that don't. I'm kind of seeing it nationwide, actually, you know, I mean, all up and down the Midwest and even over into, you know, Colorado and down to Texas, there's, um, 
you know, kind of really, really a contrast where you can have somebody who, you know, works something as black as what you're describing with the soil. I mean, that's all you see hardly any residue and right beside them is a, you know, stubble field with a, a growing cover coming up underneath it, you know, that looks somewhat green. So, I mean, right now they're both, you know, they're both farming, they're both making money and staying in the business. But um, what I see is an efficiency, you know, if you can get to that point where you do have healthy soil, it's like you and I, you know, I can come to work kind of sick and not feeling great. I could still work, I can still get it done, but I probably won't work as efficiently or as good as if I'm feeling healthy, feeling good and everything's working. That's how I kind of think of it in those terms. Yeah, that, that makes a whole lot of sense. That's, um, you know, we have uh, a, about, we have about 70 acres in uh, Northwestern PA where, you know, family, just a family cabin. And uh, that's where we do a lot of our deer hunting, um, turkey hunting, things like that. And, you know, my grandfather, you know, he gave back to the land by purchasing it and basically making it so that it's always going to stay in the family. He's instilled that in us. Um, and now it's, you know, while it's not in my name yet, um, you know, I'm looking at like, okay, what, we don't really need more than 70 acres. The prices of, of price per acre has been going through the roof around uh, that property. So I don't have the money to be buying more land and really do we need it. So what can I do to, to give back, um, you know, to the sort of outdoor wildlife community. And, and the way for me to do that is to improve the land, um, you know, through, pr you know, proper timber management and uh, planting of things that are going to benefit wildlife. And um, we've been planting food plots for, you know, over 10 years now. And we did it just like we always knew how to do it. You, you, we basically planted food plots like we were farming, like my grandfather, you know, grew up doing. You, you take the rototiller, you till stuff up, you, you kill stuff, you throw fertilizer down, you throw lime down, throw your seed down, and, you know, hope it grows. Hope you get the rain so it grows. Um, but, you know, over the years of doing that, I've noticed we've had to use more and more fertilizer. Um, our soil is naturally acidic up there, so uh, we had the, you know, we have to continue to put down more and more lime, um, and, we're not, the food plots aren't growing quite as good as they did in the, in the beginning. Um, part of that's a, a deer number issue for us, but um, it's also, I think, just the soil health as well. So we've been trying to slowly shift to a little bit more of a no-till method, um, but there's a little bit of startup cost there, um, you know, and, and just a, a shift in mentality of what looks okay, what doesn't, and trying to, there's a big learning curve on trying to figure out exactly how you're supposed to farm that way, as opposed to, you know, it's easy for us to just do what we've always done, um, to shift that mindset of, I have to do things a little bit differently. It makes it a little bit tougher. <laughs> well, you, you learn a lot of things along the way. And, and um, like I said, you know, I learned a lot with USDA and it's not that necessarily they had all the knowledge. They gave me the job that exposed me to a lot of farmers and, and researchers and other people that were working with it actively. And, um, you know, offline, if you guys, you know, if we want to keep connected about that, I can send you some resources and some other links I think would be pretty interesting about, you know, that you could look into a little further. But um, yeah, definitely there's getting to be more, more pressure on farmers and the soil and everybody to produce. And as you mentioned, land prices going up that only makes more pressure to, well, now we're going to have to make a few more bushels with a few less inputs to try to 
keep ahead of that. And that's been a, a challenge here. I know our land prices are nothing like what yours are, but in comparison to what they were 20 years ago, they've jumped many fold, you know, so it's, it's been an, an adjustment for us here as well. Yeah, the, it's amazing out here, um, the swing in, in land prices um, up by us. Uh, there, it could be any, it could be as slow as $1,000 an acre, um, but typically it's, it's more than that. But then, um, you know, down by where I live, which is closer to Pittsburgh, um, you're finding lots for sale for 150000 that are a quarter acre. Um, wow. And then, you know, when you buy that lot, you're then required to build a house on it uh, that is through a, a home builder that would be a minimum of $250,000 to $300,000. So that's, yeah, I mean, land prices are just crazy sway. It all depends on the area you're in and the utilities and the school district. And it, it, it can get real crazy real quick out here for sure. But also I wanna be, um, I wanna be very cognizant of your time. Um, I don't wanna take up too much of it. I, I will have you back on to talk more uh, because this is just so interesting to me. So um, before we end, is there anything that you want to let the listeners know about? Um, anything that we didn't talk about that you're like, uh, I really wanted to make sure we hammer this. I don't think I have anything right now, just besides, you know, stay informed. And, um, you know, I would just like to thank the people that, you know, I've worked with through the local, you know, USDA offices, dealerships, um, consultants, and people like that who have, you know, said, hey, you know, you've got this issue here in the field. I know a guy who might have a program. You know, that's really helped me be able to connect and just do some of these projects and get some traction. So, you know, I'd really like to thank, you know, those people who have helped me thus far and um, just also, you know, encourage people to, you know, to really stay informed because it, it might seem like an issue where, well, this is just about agriculture and farming and, and all this, but it's um, so much more than that. It's clean water for you people everywhere else, you know, in the city and in town and, you know, people who are doing conservation practices that helps with you know, better air quality, better water quality, you know, you get to see some wildlife, you know, maybe making a little more diverse and resilient, you know, food supply, hopefully. So um, there's benefits to everybody. It's not necessarily just ag or not necessarily just hunting. There's environmental services that these practices and, and things can help with too. That's very well said. We're all in this together. So that, that has, a, you know, the things that everyone does and, and all, you know, including farmers, that has a big impact on everyone around for sure. And I'd just like to have a, next time you guys are up here, we'll have a, a cold uh, COVID beverage or whatever, post COVID, hopefully by that time, we'll, uh, we'll see if we can solve one or two of the world's problems. We don't want oh. to tackle them all at once. Boy, it better be post COVID. I'm, I'm getting very tired uh, of being responsible. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that'll do it for today's episode. I want to thank Austin for coming on. Uh, I want to thank all of you for listening. Uh, it's been um, it's been fun doing these podcasts, and uh, the main reason why is because uh, I get to talk to people like Austin um, 
he's just been a, a wealth of knowledge outside of just this conversation uh, and someone to, to bounce ideas off of and just, you know, generally learn different ways and different techniques that we can go about doing uh, things just slightly different that can benefit farmers, that can benefit wildlife, that can benefit hunters, um, you know, really take something uh, like planting crops, which is without a doubt very important, you know, something that needs to be done to sustain a society, but at the same time do it in a way that can also promote positive uh, conservation uh, impacts and, um, you know, allow wildlife to, to thrive as well. So it's great to see for me personally, this sort of intermix between technology and tradition and conservation and um, livelihoods for people, jobs, right? To, to see all this sort of intermixing together for everything to really benefit each other, I think is just, uh, is great. Uh, if you are in the North Dakota, if you're in North Dakota, um, you know, around the uh, Jamestown, Streeter, Gackle area, um, and you have a farm or uh, you know someone has a farm and you're interested in this sort of, uh, this type of farming and some of the things that uh, Austin had to talk about, uh, you can find him uh, on, uh, through email, uh, alang at pheasantsforever.org. Uh, if you're just generally interested in what Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever have to offer, uh, pheasantsforever.org, quailforever.org, uh, I am a member of both, and I, th yeah. listen, the work they do is tremendous. This is the kind of stuff, um, you know, that it's the kind of organization that's doing the kind of things that you can be proud to know where your money's going and, and what it's going towards, um. If you just want to follow along with, with some of uh, the topics and things that Austin finds interesting and what's going on uh, at his farm and with his job, you can follow him on Twitter. It's at NDBountiful. Uh, you can find links to all this stuff in the show notes. Uh, so don't be scared to click. Knowledge is a great thing. Uh, and um, I'm going to wrap it up for this one. But uh, we will be back next week with another guest from out west. We're expanding a little bit here, I guess, and where we're getting our guests from next week is going to be another western guest. Uh, but as always, until next week and you join us again, make sure you stay wild. <laughs>